0: Welcome to Liminal Theology, a podcast exploring boundaries, transitions, and being in between. I'm your host, Jonathan Best, and join me as we journey into liminal space. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Phil Allen Jr. to the show. Phil is a PhD candidate in Christian ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary. Phil earned a bachelor's in theological studies with an emphasis in Christian ministries from the King's University, and a master of arts in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary, studying Christian ethics. His research involves race theory, theology, ethics, culture, and the theology and ethics of Martin Luther King Jr. Phil Allen Jr. is the founder of the Racial Solidarity Project, based in Los Angeles, California. He is also pastor and the founder of Own Your Own Faith Ministries. Located in Santa Clarita, California. Phil has been a speaker and preacher across the United States and abroad. Phil is a poet and a documentary film producer. His short film, Open Wounds, premiered in Los Angeles in January 2020. Phil's passion is for racial justice. His book, Open Wounds, A Story of Racial Tragedy, Trauma, and Redemption, published by Fortress Press, is currently out now. Welcome to the show, Phil. It's a pleasure to have you on, and I've been eager to have this conversation. Uh, for a while now, and uh, I'm thrilled to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here, man.
0: Well, I'd like to begin by just getting to know a little bit more about you and your journey. You are so many things, a theologian, a pastor, poet, podcaster, film producer, and more. The list goes on and on. And I I know early on, you were a basketball player at North Carolina A&T, engineering major, and I'm just wondering what led you to theology and ministry and the many things that you do today?
1: Uh, If I had to put it in one word, I'd say brokenness. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, when I moved to Los Angeles almost 19 years ago, um, I had no intentions of being in ministry. I had no intentions of uh, being a pastor, studying theology, I wanted to build my personal training business. I wanted to be an actor. Um, I wanted to make a lot of money and live the LA, Southern California life. That's what I came out here to do. And I quickly realized after a couple of years, I just got tired. I just got really tired of um, partying, hanging out, and all that, and got to a place where I needed to, to, to change. And a friend of mine invited me to church, went to church and heard a message from Bishop Omer, And I'd never heard anyone teach like that. And it resonated with me, not just what he was teaching, but his style resonated with me. Um, and the rest is history. I just began this journey of, of, of ministry teaching a Bible study, probably before I should have been teaching, and then eventually went to school to the Kings, um, accepted a call to ministry full-time around that same time, 2007, and just been a sponge ever since. Just love learning and teaching. And so I wanted to uh, continue this journey and, and hopefully end up in the classroom and teaching others as well.
0: Was religion a part of your early life growing up? Was it something that you were familiar with or was your first exposure to God and this call, was that in California or was that something you experienced uh, in your youth?
1: Yeah, I grew up um, African Method in the African Methodist Episcopal tradition. So I'm a church kid. My grandmother made me go to church every Sunday and I hated it. But, you know, my friends were there. So we had a good time. We had fun. You know, just we all had to go to church. But I tell people when I got to, when I graduated from high school, I graduated from the church. I didn't really have a relationship. I was just the the kid that they always asked me to speak or do some speech or lead in some way. Uh, I was, I think I was a good kid. I think I was a pretty good kid, nice kid or whatever. But I didn't have a relationship with with the Lord and I didn't know what was going on. And so um, I left high school, went to college, and I didn't go to church for, five years at least. And after that, it was kind of sporadic throughout my 20s. Even though I had gotten saved, I had come to faith, I didn't have anyone walking with me in my 20s. Not one person I knew was serious about their faith. And if they were, they weren't really mentoring me in that. So I was kind of just trying to read the Bible. I I tell people jokingly, I, I read Proverbs over and over again because it was the easiest to understand. I read that, and I just didn't know how to how to do this walk until I, in 2004, 04, 05, when I had friends in the church, when I rededicated my life, that's when I started to, to grow, when I had a community, I had mentorship, uh, but prior to that, growing up in the church, um, you know, family were went to church, friends went to church, but it wasn't the... I don't know, I I didn't have the model, the mentorship to help me grow in my faith. It was just, this is what the Bible says, this is what the preacher says, you just do it. That wasn't enough for me when I was young.
0: Now, how did you learn film producing and podcasting and all these other things that you do? You seem to have a wide range of ways to express your ministry. Are those things you picked up in seminary, or just just your natural gifts?
1: I think it's, it's a bit of natural gifting. I'm I'm an artist at heart. I'm a poet. Um, I, I used to draw when I was a kid, and I started drawing during um, the pandemic. Um, being at home, I picked up some some uh, equipment and started drawing again. So I'm an artist at heart. I love movies. I love film. I love music. Um, as I always knew I wanted to to do, to incorporate that, I didn't want to just be one dimensional. If you look at my life, even when I played basketball, I couldn't just play one position. Or when I played football, I couldn't just play one position. Um, you needed to put me in, allow me to play multiple roles. Uh, let, let me guard the point guard. But if the small forward is, is, is killing us, let me guard the small forward. I knew how to go, and that's what coaches. A lot of times, my coaches did, and so I see that translate into the rest of my life. Um, yes, I'm an I'm in academia, but I'm an artist. I can fit in that world too. I'm a preacher. I can fit in that world, um, and so I've always been. I've always had that type of versatility, flexibility, and, I, and it's been a, a blessing and a curse because there are times when you want to do so much and you spread yourself thin and you don't really focus on one thing. And so I'm trying to focus on one thing or a few things where the, the, the other things I'm gifted at can flow out of those things. So I'm not necessarily spreading myself, but they kind of overlap. And so I'm a teacher and I can use my film um, to teach. <laughs> it has a pedagogical function. Um, I can use my poetry to convey a message. Um, I can write. I can preach. And so that's one way of being able to do different things, but still not be spreading myself too thin, if that makes sense.
0: It's an amazing perspective about the versatility and the flexibility. And often I find in academia, there's sometimes a tendency to be inflexible of just doing things one way, or uh, the only way to express oneself is through A journal article or some other sort of research. So I appreciate the versatility and flexibility as uh, one academic to another. I think it's very much needed. And I want to talk about and jump into your work. Uh, I want to talk about Open Wounds. And I know that Open Wounds is not just a documentary, it's not just a book, it's something that's a deep personal exploration. And I think it really ties to your own identity. And so I want to look at that thoroughly and, and talk about that as it's a deep personal exploration of the murder of your grandfather, Nathaniel Allen in 1953. Could you tell me about the film and then the book and how this came to be, what led you to doing the film and, and the book? Okay, thank you for that question. Um, I, I'm
1: gonna take on a short journey. Um, years ago, I asked my grandmother when she was alive, I would ask her about my grandfather, and I was in my early 40s, maybe no, I was in my late 30s, and she, she, when I asked her the question, there was a visceral response of she was bothered. There, you could, you could tell. Now I know it's it was trauma for her to revisit that. It was the trauma from the event itself, and. I I left it alone. Years later, about six, seven months before she passed away, I asked her the question again. And she answered and she told me, she gave me some details. Um, Maybe a year after that, I'm in Martin Luther King class, a class on uh, theology and ethics of Martin Luther King. We're seeing a, a video, Eyes on the Prize, and they come to the scene with a picture of Emmett Till. And if you don't know who Emmett Till is, Emmett till 14-year-old kid from Chicago was down in Mississippi visiting family for the summer. They said that he whistled at or spoke to a white woman saying, hey, baby, or something. As it turns out, if I'm not mistaken, um, he never said that. The, the woman's husband and brother found him that night at his grandfather's house, I think it's his grandfather's house, and took him out. And next thing you know, they find his body days later um in the river and it's completely not dismembered but you can't even recognize him so when i saw the picture and i grew up seeing that picture so it wasn't new to me but since my grandmother had told me about my grandfather now when i saw the picture i can't i couldn't see emmett till without seeing my grandfather i shared that in class with a small group and two it was a white kid white white young man and a white young woman and they began to cry when i told the story i'd never seen that response from white people before to black tragedy to racism and so it moved me and it meant it was meaningful for me that they had that response it was a genuine response of tears and brokenness and matter of fact the, the young man said you can't see your grand your grandfather emmett till without seeing your grandfather and i can't see the men who killed emmett till without seeing my grandfather because he was from the south he was from alabama and so shared it with the rest of the class same same response similar response fast forward a couple of years i go to sundance sundance film festival with windrider um, productions Wind Rider company they have a forum for Christian filmmakers, Christian students, or anyone who's just, they, they're interested in film, watching movies and critiquing. And I went as a, as a directed reading, a directed study, and I saw a film, another film that reminded me of my grandfather. The details were similar to my grandfather's details. A film called Always in Season um, about lynching. And it was around the lynching of a young black kid six years, six, six, seven years ago now seven years ago now in North Carolina, where his body was found hung, and they called it a suicide. But all the evidence said otherwise, much like my grandfather's. And um, after seeing the film, I shared in Rider my grandfather's story. So hundreds of people are now in this forum and it's the same response, tears, brokenness, and even some anger. And my grandfather was a Navy veteran And so he served this country and come back home, nine years later, he's killed at the hands of racism. And people kept encouraging me to tell this story. And I thought they meant write the book, but I'm in a context of filmmakers and documentarists and they were telling me, you gotta tell this story through film. And and that's when it hit me and I called my friend, L. Michael Lee, who directed the film and asked him, I said, do you want to do this story, this film? Told him what it was about, and he immediately was like, "Yes." And so that's when it when the, that's when it began. And so, in six months later on that year, 2019, we go about shooting the film. We shot it. Went to South Carolina. Literally, just over 24 hours of shooting, we went from location to location, interview to interview, um, family and friends. And we shot it, went to Minnesota, did the same thing with my dad and his brother, my uncle. And then the editing began in the fall, and completed by December. And he was—he had two kids, three kids, and he was pregnant. His wife was pregnant with a third, with another kid, during all this time. So I know it was tough on him. And we got it done. And fortunately, we we pressed it, we pushed and got it done because if we had not gotten gotten it done last year. Who knows if we could have been able to do it in 2020? And so the timing of everything, with all that happened last spring and summer, maud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the timing of it was, was perfect. And so the book came about while I was doing the film, I started writing the book. And then one of my professors took it and pitched it to Fortress Press. They liked it and the rest is history. Months later, we signed a contract. I wrote the book during the pandemic, and um, we just released it today.
0: A whirlwind of activity uh, to get that done, and I was not aware that the filming took what we said twenty-four hours essentially of uh, doing those. And wow, that's a that's a, a, an amazing achievement. And, and a film that is uh, very powerful, very provocative, very insightful. When you began this documentary, this filming, was it a transformative journey for you as well? And did you discover and learn new things about not only the event, but also yourself and your own theology, your own perspective of, of racism in this country, of deep systemic issues? how did the film change you? Oh my
1: goodness. Not only did I learn much about my grandfather that I didn't know, I learned about my grandmother who I grew up with. And so much was explained, like why she was the way she was. My grandmother was tough. Sometimes, a lot of times too tough. And it all made sense. My dad's life now made sense because he was two years old when his father was killed. And he found out when he was nine. So how does a nine-year-old process that? And the man who killed him lived a few doors down from him. And his kids, my father's who played with his kids, ironically, during that time, played with his kids and they get to have their father and their father killed his father. So that sent him on a spiral. It helped our relationship, me and my father's relationship. I think it helped him to be able to now process his father's death and life, and to know that his son is doing something that he couldn't or my grandmother couldn't do. I have the resources and I don't have quite as much trauma being a generation removed as my dad. So I could do this. I think, for me, it also spoke to the resiliency in my family and where that comes from for me. For my grandmother to deal with that in 1953, to never get justice, she carried that her whole life. And yet, she raised those kids. She got remarried and then he died. But she raised those kids. She got her degrees, became an educator. And I learned from that, that's what taught me. So I, I say, and it's not in the film, but I say that, I said this in the interview, trauma discipled me, but so did resiliency. And so I, it, it, it taught me a lot about the stock that I come from. It taught me a lot about uh, what runs through my veins and that's the resiliency. Now, my great grandfather on my mom's side of the family was also killed when my grandmother was two in 1933. And so this trauma is on both sides of the family. You know, it's one thing for a family to have something happen to, cause there are thousands of families who have dealt with lynching during Jim Crow era. Mine, my family dealt with two dealt with two of them. And then I have another uncle who, there was an attempt to kill him when he was a teenager. I mean, this is what has ravaged my family. And so I, I did the film in response to pe- some people saying, can't you guys just move on from the past? And I don't know how you do that when when trauma persists. Because trauma doesn't go. Suffering can, can end. But it's this idea that trauma remains. It lingers. And there are things that can trigger it. Like my grandmother, 50, 60 years later, she's triggered by a question. So I think the biggest thing is the resiliency. That's what I learned about myself and my family. And I want to honor that through these projects.
0: Wow. That's speechless, really, to, to hear this story, to hear how it changed you, the, the suffering that your family has gone through and, and the suffering that Which lingers still, um, as you said, in 2020, so much racial injustice, and this story still continues. And how have you found the reaction to your film? How have others connected it to their own stories? Perhaps Uh, those dealing with trauma who are in this state of being of being discipled by trauma, as you put it, are others. Coming to this film and, and finding some connection, some kind of healing or understanding, what's the reaction been to the film?
1: There's been a tremendous response to this film, positively. Um, I've had people back home and elsewhere say that they their family experienced something like that as well. more than i can remember which is mind-boggling even in my hometown that that many times someone was mysteriously killed um i've had i've had people i had a young white man come up to me in tears as i he didn't see the film but i was talking about the film but his response was and reflecting on his own family and finding out that he had ancestors that owned slaves. And so that shook him. And so when, when people have come to the film, all positive responses, understanding, giving them a deeper understanding of the depth of the, the effects of racism. Um, and I would say white supremacy, um, not just hate groups, but the ideology of white superiority, which undergirds the system, the systemic issues of r- racism that we deal with, um, they've been. It's caused people to reflect. It's caused people to think about even even their trauma. It's caused them to think about trauma that's not r- race related, violations that they've experienced. So it's opened that up, and now it's giving them boldness to tell their story to metabolize as Resmaa Menachem in my grandmother's hands would say, metabolize the trauma. Um, And then there's, there's the father issue. There's a scene in the film where me and my dad have this moment of reconciliation. And I forgive him and he says he forgives himself and he thanks me for forgiving him and we hug and there's tears in that scene. And that's a powerful scene even to me for me to watch it still. And many people have responded to that. Many people have responded to that scene because there's so many, there's so many people with father issues. And so I don't want to take away from the race part of it, but if that can be a, a, a scene that could bring healing,
0: so be it. When you began this film, was your goal to educate and motivate others to tackle the problem of racism? was this a motivating factor to bring attention not just not to just one story but also to highlight the hiddenness the the way that we brush aside so many of these stories the lynchings the killings the way that in society we especially among White people, there's a sense of being uncomfortability. We don't want to talk about these things. We want to pretend that they don't exist. But your film states, "No, this this really does exist. Uh, not just in 1953, but now." Was that a motivating factor for this film? Is not just to bring attention to one story, but to highlight the the many many stories that persist of racial injustice and the way that we tend to hide these things or not talk about these things, say that, hey, racism's not a problem today, but, and very well, it is. We still continue to deal with these things. Is that one of the motivating factors that led you to do this film?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Number one motivating factor was to honor my grandfather's name. He was in fact murdered. A bullet hole was seen in the back of his head, but the death certificate said accidental drowning. And so he'll forever, his name will forever be dishonored if, if if we allowed that to stay. So I wanted his name to be attached to a book or a film that would engage the issue of race from here until. So now when you think of his name, it's not just about accidental drowning or being dishonored. It's His name is a part of the narrative now. I wanted to give voice to my grandmother's pain and suffering. I wanted to do that. But absolutely, I wanted this story, use this story as a microcosm of the what happens in the broader society, particularly for African-Americans. And this is a part of U.S. history. It's a part of our history, the ugly part of our history. And I, I challenge people in the book, the second half of the book. I still use the narrative, but I challenge people to engage, to deal with the healing, help contribute to the healing of, of, of black folks, but also the 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 as Resma would say, Menachem would say, the white body trauma that even exists in white bodies to to allow that type of violence to persist for hundreds of years towards groups of color, Native, African-American, what have you. And so there's a healing that has, I mean, if you think about it, we're a traumatized nation. From the Those who came from the beginning, they were escaping trauma of some sort. My people came in trauma. The, the immigrants often that have come to the southern border, trauma refugees that trauma i mean we're a traumatized nation but we present ourselves as so tough and we're seeing the we're seeing the fruit of that in the breakdown of our society now right so i, I challenge people to engage by listening and learning and lamenting that space of grief it says you feel. And I think way too often we don't appreciate what that, how valuable that is to feel, not just our own pain, but others. And so that's that's a big part of it. I think when we talk about race, so many people can dismiss it because it doesn't come to their front door. But when you feel, like my classmates did, I don't know what they're doing now. What I do know is something happened that day with them. something happened that day. So yeah, that's part of the motivation.
0: I think about the big question here, how do we tackle racism today and and where do we begin? Do you think it begins with these one-on-one conversations, these places and periods of entering into conversation, of being open to listening to the other, to listening to those who have suffer trauma to acknowledge the trauma as a as a nation of trauma as you said i guess i'm searching for what it will take to achieve true reconciliation does it begin in these type of conversations
1: i think that these conversations are necessary and they must continue and happen in more spaces but these, this isn't the only thing that we have to do it's part of it i think legally there, there are laws that need to be changed, there, 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 but that doesn't change it, the culture necessarily, not, not immediately. I think there, but we, ha- we have to borrow from that African uh, term, Sankofa, and we have to be willing to go back and get. We gotta be willing to go back and reteach, go back and deconstruct, go back and think critically, go back and challenge what we've been given historically, in terms of historical accounts, and tell the whole truth. Um, I find that not many people know how we got here. People are upset about what happened with George Floyd, and rightfully so, but George Floyd is a part of a lineage. I don't know if there's a decade since 1619 where there hasn't been an, an epidemic of black bodies dying either directly or indirectly at the cause of racism. I don't know if you can find a decade when that hasn't happened. And if they're not dying, they're imprisoned or in the system. And when people talk about black on black crime, well, let's talk about white on white crime. Let's talk about brown on brown crime. Let's talk about the crime that happens because of proximity. Let's talk about the social social conditions that have shaped the thinking of people that would even turn on themselves and and have that inflict that type of violence within their own community. So it's not as simple as personal responsibility. Yes, there is responsibility. And we've been trying to change that in our communities for decades. We're not just not doing anything, but we also need resources to help change within our communities. So there's a, there's a, a network of things that we must do and I think these conversations must be had. But one of my frustrations is we just have we we just have the conversations. And there's not enough people that are willing to take risks. So we talk about reconciliation. I use solidarity um, because reconciliation has been diluted. Um, it's been rendered, in my opinion, impotent. It's basically, let's get along. It's interpersonal. And one of my professors talked about reconciliation doesn't address structural issues it's more relational it's more interpersonal but solidarity does racial solidarity that's you standing with me against another entity that is affecting my life it may not be affecting yours but you stand in solidarity with me against that person that institution that those laws what have you that culture and that to me is the picture of reconciliation that's the proof of it because if you're not willing to stand with me when things are affecting me like the samaritan man if you're not willing to be that samaritan man do you really love me are we really reconciled you know god god showed that when god took on flesh that was a solidaric act And i tell people god could have remained in the invisibility and transcendence of the spirit and mystery of the spirit And still been God. God chose to take on flesh and suffer with and suffer as humanity, right? And then you look at the cross. Those are solidaric acts. We should model that because that's the picture of reconciliation. That's the message that you embody that says, We are reconciled because I stand
0: with you. That is so powerful. And I'm. You're absolutely right. Sometimes we use this term reconciliation today as a throwaway term, and we listen to the story and may even come to some bit of understanding of it, perhaps moved, but we don't reorient ourselves. We don't change who we are because of it. And the the seeds of that reconciliation, what it could grow into the solidarity that bring that that comes that comes forth from that the the fruit of reconciliation never manifest and so you know i know a number of people who perhaps understand intellectually and maybe somewhat empathetic but they continue doing the same things saying the same things holding some of the same prejudices they've they've had before, perhaps, perhaps they just bury them. I think the way that you've put together reconciliation and solidarity, they can't be separate, that they have to be together, that to see reconciliation, you have to have solidarity. And, and perhaps it is also, as you suggested, with Christ coming in the flesh who entered into suffering that's that moment of solidarity is a a Christ event, a, an encounter that encounter with the other, the encounter with the one who is suffering is a Christ event, a life changing life altering a, a call to, to come to follow, to enter in this place of suffering, to learn, to grow. So, yes, I think, wow, you just, you just, the wheels are turning for me as I'm thinking of, of such of, as you mentioned the the systemic problems that we have, and the way that we talk about reconciliation, but we don't talk about solidarity. I think that term solidarity sometimes scares people. Yeah, there's this sense of, of, you know, oh, I, I can understand, you know, I don't mind being reconciled, but. Mm, Solidarity. I don't know about that. That makes me uncomfortable. That makes me. I'm not sure what will come from that. And so we come, we enter into this place with the other, but we're not willing to really move forward. We 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 hold ourselves back. I don't really have a question with that. I just this this <laughs> this this moment of solidarity. Yeah, it's it's very powerful to me.
1: You know, I, I think solidarity is scary particularly for Christians, because it we start to think about suffering. Because it, it causes you to have to relinquish self-preservation. And what does that mean? Because reconciliation simply means we get along. You and I get along. We're good, right? Solidarity requires more. And it can be painful. It can be scary. There's a risk involved risk of reputation, name, relationships, status, positions. And people don't want to give that up. I've lived my life in the last 15 years with the notion that God could allow for anything in my life to be taken away. How will I respond? So I don't have a lot of... uh, hindrances. I'm not saying I don't have any, I don't have many. And if it requires me standing for what's right and standing with someone and it says, well, you're going to lose your your following or you're going to, I'm good. I'm good. And most people don't can't say that. You know, especially most leaders, many leaders, I'll say.
0: Yeah, it always seems that, especially among white people, those of white privilege, of, of holding on to things of whatever that is, that you mentioned, status, wealth, position, or just the fear of what will my neighbor say? What will this person or that person think about me? But that solidaric moment requires us to just, that stuff doesn't matter. I mean, if, if, i'm If I'm holding on to what status I have, if holding on to some sort of material position, we may think, as you said, you know, I'm living my life, you're living your life, and we're we're not we're not you know we're living at least next to each other in peace, that doesn't allow us to enter into that trauma, that place where hey, I'm not recognizing the suffering that my refusal to enter in a solidarity, to, to enter into a place of understanding, to walk with that other person, particularly a person of color. There's a lot of harm that can be done by just saying, we're good. You know, uh, my, I live my life and you live, you live your life and systemic issues continue on. Uh, and we say that, well, you know, life is so difficult. You know, I I'm just trying to look out for myself. I'm trying to look out for my family. I'm trying to do what's what's best for me or for um, my kids. We don't realize the cost that comes with that sometimes. That my own individualism, my own fears, uh, keep me from helping the other, to working with uh, the other, and to actually tackle and change the systemic problems rather than just perpetuating them by our own um, inability to respond. And so I think what your film does and your work does is really speaks to us to make a change of how many more individuals will have to suffer and experience trauma before we're willing to say, okay, now it's time for me to enter into solidarity. We have to change this. We have to do something different. And we have to find some sort of hope. And th- that leads me to a question I have for you is, is, are you hopeful? Are you optimistic? I know the last four years have been one of many setbacks. But as you said, the, the issues persisted long before then how do you remain hopeful for the future or are you hopeful for the future? How do we, how do we enter and find this place of solidarity that you're speaking of? Um, is it something that you think is achievable in, in our lifetimes?
1: I, I don't believe in, at least not in my lifetime. And that's, that's if I live to be a hundred that we'll see a racism free society here in this country. What I am hopeful about, though, are the spaces. The increase in the spaces where that's true. I'm hopeful that as there's a diversity in leadership, in institutions, in among the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, that there will be change, continual change. I am hopeful that there's continual change. I'm not excited about the pace, and I don't believe that it will be universal. I believe we'll always have that issue. That's the nature of sin and this particular sin that's been here for hundreds of years. But I do believe what gives me hope are the spaces, the increase in the, the places where you can go, where They're not making it because I have conversations with a lot of my white friends, a few of my white friends, and more and more than ever before, in my opinion, in my life, have been willing to stand up and not allow for racist comments, racist remarks, racist jokes, racist thinking attitudes to be safe. It's still a small number but I'm starting to see, and I'll be even more hopeful when we start to infiltrate more in that conservative realm. But I'm not confident that, I think we'll be dealing with this at least all my lifetime. Hopefully we'll have different conversations and it's not as, not quite as prevalent, but I'm confident that there will be more spaces. And that's where I
0: focus on What do you think the role of the church will be in those spaces? Will Will the church be a facilitator of those spaces, of those conversations, of those moments of solidarity? Or do you think the church still has a little more work to do?
1: I think the church has a lot more work to do. I think there will always be a part of the church that resists because of its entanglement with white supremacy, white ideology. but I do think that there will be more spaces where the church is, are, the churches are facilitating. Um, I'm seeing it happen. I think uh, when that does happen, that will be a type of revival. It won't be the event, but it will be a type of, it will, I think it will foster a type of revival, a revival towards community, towards that solidarity, towards seeing God, seeing Jesus differently. I, here's here's when, when you know it's gonna change. When white folks are not afraid to to see Jesus as a black Jesus, when white folks can declare, and I mean even conservative, they can declare that Jesus was not white physically, but they're okay and they're comfortable with an ontologically black Jesus. And as Cone would say, it's not about Jesus being ethnically black, but it's about blackness and in terms of being antithetical to whiteness, you know, ontologically. And that could mean any marginalized, any marginalization and suffering in the community he's a, he's a, uh, associating with being black. And Jesus was Jesus suffered. Jesus was marginalized, Jesus was poor, and then Jesus hung with those groups. And he's saying, that's a black Jesus. And when 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 the white folks, particularly more conservative, when they can get in their mind, imagine an ontologically black Jesus is who they serve. That's when we've made significant progress. Because I think it starts there. I think it's how we see Jesus. And, and, and most people think they come to the table with a pure Christianity, none of us do. <laughs> the last 1700 years, none of us do. It's been shaped in different ways by, by our social location. But I think that's critical, how we see Jesus. Someone asked me that question a, a week ago on a chapel I did for a college basketball team. And "Well, how do we change this? I said, it changes when you see Jesus differently. When you're able to picture a black Jesus,
0: that is so insightful. I I think that so many of us we we look at Jesus and the Jesus we see looks remarkably like us in both. You know, confirming all of our own prejudices and faults and things we we project onto Jesus rather than having Jesus project onto us and to see the the possibility of. Of, of a Jesus who is more reflective of of a, of a diverse nation of a diverse world. I th- yeah, I think it. A lot of it begins there. It begins with yeah. When we see when we're able to see a black Jesus, when we're able to see a Jesus that's not just the personification of of, of what we see when we look into the mirror. I want to talk about liminality a little bit. I know we both share interest in it as members of the uh, Guild for Engaged Liminality, as you've attended a few meetings. And I'm wondering how liminality fits into this conversation of the struggle with racism, the many changes that we go through. Is this a liminal moment? Or has this always been a liminal moment, this history of trauma of racism, and if it is a liminal moment, um, is there a moment for exiting that liminality of coming out has changed people? What's your feelings on liminality and racism? Wow. I see the issue of
1: racism in this country, I liken it to either the Israelites in Egypt for 400 years or the wilderness. Like we're still in the wilderness. I usually use the wilderness. We're still in the wilderness as it relates to racism. And we're wandering. We're wandering. We don't have to be here, but we're wandering. And until there's a change in in mind, ideology, attitude, thinking, the way we see Jesus, the way we see each other, we can't go into a promised land. We'll ruin it. Right, we'll pervert it. So I think we've always been in a liminal space. We've told ourselves we're a great nation, prosperous, wealthy, powerful, everything seems okay. I think we've always been in a liminal space. And I think this is an even deeper space of liminality. There is something happening that I hope is transitional for this country. Um, for each of us. You know, I I look at my grandmother's life as just as a black woman. She's always had a tough life. She did sit-ins before they were ever popular and recorded. She was doing sit-ins at white restaurants in in, in our hometown when she was like a teenager. So... The black experience is a liminal space. I wrote a poem called The The Unknown Land, and it's about being in between and all the different ways that I feel like I'm in between. And so her life has been that, but if you take that event, that what happened to my grandfather, and you take her death, that's a liminal space. She wasn't freed of that liminal space of pain and suffering and trauma until she passed and transitioned on because that event changed her. That was an event event that marked her and it changed her. Her brothers have told me it changed her. She was never the same after that. And so it became culture. It became part of who she is, her personality, but it was a liminal space and she did not enter, she did not exit that space until she passed away. Because she carried it the rest of her life, and that's how I see racism. I see being black in this country is 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 a liminal, being in a liminal space, that in between. Um, but then there there there's, there are times that mark a civil rights movement. That mark us. Black Lives Matter movement is marking us. Now either we're either we're deepening into that space, in between, or we're coming out of it and coming into a new season. I don't know. That remains to be seen. But I think it's a both and I think it's always been but I think there are moments that is that are more profound. More profound liminality.
0: I guess it also speaks to the importance of community of 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 working together of the solidarity as we were talking about earlier. Because individually, that the liminality can be very so so very difficult to go through, especially when it becomes ascribed to our own being, as we as we see ourselves as the stuck in between. And I think as that liminality continues continues on, and we have these perhaps profound movements of perhaps a different type of liminality. Um, but I'm wondering. I think. I think this all speaks to the need for this communitas, as Victor Turner would talk about with liminality, of this kind of shared understanding. And one of the things I think your film does is promotes a, a at least a shared understanding or a, a, a willingness to approach, to enter into that liminal state, even if you can't really truly enter into the same suffering but at least to see it, to acknowledge that it exists, to acknowledge there are so many people in our nation and our society who are in that in-between, who are in that place of, of suffering, of uncomfortability, of not seeing a way out. I think that requires not just the black community, but the white community, the, the, whole, the whole community of, of the nation to say, to come together, and solidarity to, because liminality can be a very difficult thing to go through, to live with. And perhaps while that liminality may continue, perhaps at least we able to bear one another's burdens a little bit better. Absolutely. I'm wondering what's next for you, Phil? Is another film in the works? I know you've, you've, I film in a book and, and from 2019 to 2020, you're, you've, you have a very busy person. But do you already have something else in the works, something else that you're thinking about perhaps once we emerge from the pandemic and you're free to start filming again? Uh, are there other stories you wish to tell?
1: So many stories, probably too many. Um, I have some ideas. I want to do short films for a while. I want to produce short films. There's a guy named Ben Proudfoot that he does probably 30, at least 30, 40 short films a year. Phenomenal filmmaker. And I've had the pleasure of interviewing him a couple of times. And um, I, I want to follow in those steps. I want to learn the trait, learn the the, the, the craft, and understand how to make films and I wanna produce short films. Um, I have a, a potentially have a book that um, I'm working on. I had a publisher contact me after seeing a, a, an abstract when I presented at AAR this past December. And so there's potentially a book that may come out of that. Um, but really I wanna get through this PhD program I want to get through this program. I want to finish strong. And uh, these exams are coming up now, actually, in a a couple of weeks. And get get on the other side of that and then write this dissertation. But I do want to do more films. Um, I podcast. So I wanted to use that platform as well to continue my message.
0: It makes me excited to see... I think the birth of a, of a new type of theologian uh, of a theologian who doesn't just sit away in an ivory tower and write books and isolate themselves from society, but your engagement, the way that you're bringing your theology, your message through film, uh, through podcasting, through your own ministry, I think it's very, and helpful, very insightful, very promising. I think what I believe theology can be and should be in the future of one not just not just one of journal articles and academic books, but but one that really engages people from a practical aspect that challenges people that tells stories. Uh, I think that is one of the best way to to do theology is through storytelling and and also through the poetry as well. Those are the things that I I find so helpful and and I appreciate about what you're doing. And I'm looking forward to learning and seeing more films and poetry and whatever else you can come up with, Phil. I think that would be, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, some many great things in the future.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the encouragement. Um, I'm going to try to do it and stay out of trouble.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, how can others learn more about your work, find the film, find the book, uh, your own website as well, um, connect with you? Yeah. um,
1: Most things, philallenjr.com. You can find the film there, information on the book. Um, Openwoundsdoc.com. OpenWoundsDoc.com is where you can. It'll take you to the, the the trailer. You click on it, follow the instructions to uh, watch the film on demand on Vimeo, and that's also connected to my website. Um, the book is on Amazon. It's on BarnesandNobles.com. It's in. Uh, it's on FortressPress.com. Um, I'm unsure, unclear today, if it's in the bookstores physically. Like Barnes and Nobles, Um, I'll find out soon. And we're we're working with different bookstores across the country to get the books in. But definitely on those websites you can find it. And on social media, at Phil Allen Junior IG for Instagram, at Phil Allen Junior for Twitter, and Phil Allen Junior for Facebook, my personal page and my author page, Phil Allen Junior Author is my author page. So those are ways you can keep
0: in touch with me. Excellent, I encourage everyone to uh, check out Phil's website. Excellent uh, resources there, podcast and poetry, and and also as you mentioned, the, the book. I have noticed today it is out on Amazon, so at least I saw the Kindle version. And Phil, it's been a wonderful pleasure to talk to you today, to wrestle with these issues, to listen to your story. To learn from you and i very much appreciate the time that you've given today to to share with me and uh looking forward to continuing the conversation at a future date perhaps after that the comp after your comps are over and your dissertation is done and uh you have a little more freedom to uh perhaps do all the things you want to do absolutely would love to talk more man My name is Jonathan Best, and this has been Liminal Theology. Learn more at liminaltheology.org.